Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal's Editor Highlights Podcast. Each month, Chess Editor-in-Chief Dr. Peter Mazzone highlights key articles from the current issue of the journal to help clinicians stay informed about new research in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce this month's episode, here is Dr. Peter Mazzone. Thank you for tuning in to the Editor's Highlight Podcast for the September 2023 issue of the journal Chest. We have a great lineup of diverse content in this month's issue. Over the next 15 minutes, I'll provide a brief overview of key manuscripts published in each of our content areas. We'll start with our asthma content area. As needed, albuterol, budesonide, meter dose inhaler has been shown to significantly reduce severe exacerbation risk compared to as-needed albuterol in patients with moderate to severe asthma. The FDA requires knowledge of the contribution of each component of a combination medication to its efficacy. This was previously unknown. In this issue, Chips and colleagues report findings from a phase three double-blind randomized 12-week trial designed to determine if both albuterol and budesonide contribute to the efficacy of the albuterol-budesonide combination MDI. 989 patients were valuable for efficacy. Change from baseline FEV1 AUC was greater with albuterol-budesonide than budesonide alone. Change in trough FEV1 was greater with albuterol-budesonide than albuterol alone. Day one time to onset and duration of bronchodilation with albuterol-budesonide and albuterol were similar. The adverse event profile of the combination product was similar to the individual components. These findings suggest that both monocomponents contribute to the lung function efficacy of albuterol-budesonide, supporting the combined product's use as a novel rescue therapy. Next is our chest infections content area. Epstein-Barr virus is commonly detected in patients with severe COPD. In this issue, Linden and colleagues report findings from a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial designed to determine if valacyclovir is safe and effective for EBV suppression in COPD. 84 patients with moderate to severe COPD in sputum EBV were randomly assigned to valacyclovir or placebo for eight weeks. A greater number of participants in the valacyclovir group achieved EBV suppression and had a significant reduction in sputum EBV titer compared to placebo. The FEV1 did not increase significantly, while a reduction in sputum white cell count was noted in the valacyclovir group. These findings suggest that valacyclovir is safe, can effectively suppress EBV, and may attenuate the sputum inflammatory cell infiltrate in COPD. Also in this section, is an original research study assessing the impact of procalcitonin-guided antibiotic prescription in patients with COVID-19. Another, exploring the effect of inhaled corticosteroids on the U-shaped relationship between eosinophil count and bronchiectasis severity. 
and a third describing complications in practice variation in the use of peripherally inserted central venous catheters in people with cystic fibrosis. On to our COPD content area. Individuals with COPD and preserved ratio impaired spirometry, or PRISM, may have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. In this issue, Krishnan and colleagues report findings from an analysis of the Canadian cohort obstructive lung disease designed to determine if individuals with impaired spirometry, either mild to moderate or worse COPD, or PRISM, in community settings have a higher prevalence and incidence of cardiovascular disease compared to those with normal spirometry, and to determine if adding impaired spirometry improves cardiovascular disease risk scores. 728 people with normal spirometry and 835 with impaired spirometry were included. The prevalence of cardiovascular disease was significantly higher in individuals with impaired spirometry, COPD gold stage 2 or higher, and in those with PRISM, compared to those with normal spirometry. The incidence of cardiovascular disease was higher for the impaired spirometry and COPD groups compared to those with normal spirometry, particularly among those with COPD gold stage 2 or higher. Adding impaired spirometry to cardiovascular disease risk scores had limited value in improving prediction. These findings suggest that individuals with moderate or worse COPD and those with PRISM have increased comorbid cardiovascular disease. Next is our critical care content area. Knowledge of the association between subjective impressions of excessive ICU care and objective patient outcomes is poor. In this issue, peers and colleagues report findings from a prospective observational study designed to determine if there is a difference in treatment limitation decisions and one-year outcomes in patients less than 75 and greater than or equal to 75 years of age with and without concordant perceptions of excessive care by two or more ICU nurses and physicians. 405 of 1,641 patients were 75 years of age or older. The incidence of concordant perceptions of excessive care was higher in older patients. In those with concordant perceptions, there was no difference in risk of death, treatment limitation decisions, or a combined endpoint between age groups. In patients without a concordant perception of excessive care, there was a difference in risk of death and treatment limitation decisions by age, most of which were documented prior to ICU admission. These results identify a slightly higher incidence of perceptions of excessive care in older patients, but no differences in treatment limitation or outcome when perceptions of excessive care are present. Also in this section is an original research article that assesses inter-rater reliability of the 2015 PALIC criteria for pediatric ARDS and a research letter assessing the impact of comorbidities on initial lactate clearance in septic patients and the ability of initial lactate clearance to predict subsequent lactate trajectory. 
onto our diffuse lung disease content area. The presence of eosinophils has been associated with acute rejection or chronic lung allograft dysfunction after lung transplantation. In this issue, Todd and colleagues report findings from BAL fluid and biopsy of 531 lung transplant recipients over the first post-transplant year to determine if histologic allograft injury or respiratory microbiology correlate with the presence of eosinophils in BAL fluid and whether early post-transplant BAL fluid eosinophilia is associated with future chronic lung allograft dysfunction development. They found that the odds of BAL fluid eosinophils being present was significantly higher at the time of acute rejection, with non-rejection lung injury histologies and during pulmonary fungal detection. Early post-transplant BAL fluid eosinophils of 1% or higher significantly and independently increased the risk for chronic lung allograft dysfunction development. These findings identify BAL fluid eosinophilia as an independent predictor of future chronic lung allograft dysfunction risk and identify type 2 inflammatory signals in established chronic lung allograft dysfunction, highlighting the need for studies of targeted interventions in chronic lung allograft dysfunction prevention or treatment. Completing this section is a research letter that evaluates progress in clinical trials in sarcoidosis. On to our education and clinical practice content area. Dyspnean exertion in those with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is presumed to be related to a rise in pulmonary capillary wedge pressure during exercise. In this issue, Balmain and colleagues evaluated 30 patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction with two invasive exercise tests, one with placebo and one with nitroglycerin, to determine if reducing pulmonary capillary wedge pressure during exercise improves dyspnean exertion in individuals with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. They found that ratings of perceived breathlessness increased despite a clear decrease in pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. Alveolar dead space, alveolar arterial PO2 difference, and ventilatory efficiency all increased after a decrease in pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. These findings show that lowering pulmonary capillary wedge pressure with nitroglycerin exacerbates dyspnea exertion in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, while increasing ventilation perfusion mismatch and worsening ventilatory efficiency, suggesting a reevaluation of the therapeutic strategy for this group. Also in this section is an original research article evaluating longitudinal lung function of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 using one hydrogen and 129 xenon lung MRI and a chest review that describes the exercise pathophysiology of myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, and post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2. Our pulmonary vascular content area this month contains a chest review on exercise testing in the risk assessment of pulmonary hypertension. Our sleep medicine content area is next. 
The mechanism underlying the association between the need for increased therapeutic pressure with CPAP delivered via an oronasal mask compared with nasal masks is not well understood. In this issue, Landry and colleagues report on the evaluation of 14 patients with obstructive sleep apnea who underwent a sleep study with both a nasal and oronasal mask to determine how oronasal masks affect upper airway anatomy and collapsibility. The oronasal mask was associated with higher therapeutic pressure requirements and higher pharyngeal critical closing pressure. Increasing CPAP increased both the retroglossal and retropalatal airway dimensions as assessed by sign MRI. The retropalatal cross-sectional area was moderately larger when using a nasal versus an oral nasal mask while nasal breathing. These results suggest that oral nasal masks are associated with a more collapsible airway than nasal masks, likely contributing to the need for a higher therapeutic pressure. Next is our thoracic oncology content area. Prediction models for mediastinal metastasis have not been evaluated using a prospective cohort of potentially operable patients with non-small cell lung cancer. In this issue, Chung and colleagues evaluated a prediction model for lung cancer staging mediastinal metastasis plus M and a model for mediastinal metastasis detection by EBIS tBNA plus E in a prospective cohort of 589 potentially operable patients with non-small cell lung cancer to determine the accuracy of these prediction models for detecting mediastinal metastasis. The prevalence of mediastinal metastasis was 35.3%, and the sensitivity of EBIS tBNA was 87.0%. The model's variables were non-squamous histology, younger age, central location of the tumor, larger tumor size, and N1 to N3 disease on imaging. The AUC of the plus M and plus E models in the validation cohort were 0.859 and 0.900 respectively. These results confirmed potentially clinically useful model accuracies, which could influence clinical decisions about the evaluation for mediastinal metastasis. Also in this section is an original research article that evaluates cardiovascular and pulmonary responses to acute use of electronic nicotine delivery systems and combustible cigarettes in chronic users, and another that reports on trends in smoking-specific lung cancer incidence rates within a U.S. integrated health system. Completing this section, is a chest review on the physiology and clinical implications of pressure-dependent pneumothorax and air leak. I encourage you to read our Humanities in Chest Medicine section, where you will find an exhalations piece titled Hands and a case-based discussion titled Towards a Race-Neutral System of PFT Interpretation. Finally, please review our case series publications for the month, providing novel and educational cases to help improve your clinical skills. I hope you enjoy reading all the high-quality content available in this month's issue of CHEST, 
As always, I'm grateful to the authors of this work, the reviewers who volunteered their time to improve the quality of these manuscripts, and to our editorial board for guiding everything that we do. Until next month, I hope you enjoy the September issue. Thanks for listening to the Chess Journal's Editor Highlights podcast. You can find the articles mentioned in this podcast and more on chestjournal.org. And if you're looking for more context and commentary on articles in the current issue, please check out the original Chess Journal podcast, which features in-depth discussions with the authors themselves. We'll be back again with more Editor's Highlights next month.